Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can worship you. We thank you for the sweet, sweet flavor, God, of your Holy Spirit. And Lord, I pray now that as we go to your word, you would encourage us, that you would challenge us, that we would be open to whatever it is you have for each one of us individually as you speak to us individually and corporately as the body of Christ. God, that your word brings life to those who hear it and receive it and respond to it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, we are in the story, chapter 29. If you're still, how many of you are still with us? Come on now, be honest. Oh my goodness. Can I start with a rebuke? Catch up. Catch up. We are in chapter 29, which means there's only two chapters left in the book, the story. Uh, Chapter 29 is really focusing in on Paul and the ministry and the spreading of the gospel. If you remember last week, I talked a lot about the changes that were taking place when you get into the book of Acts. And now, as we look into chapter 29, we're going to be looking at some more changes. Although they may not be quite as significant, they're still very significant. If you remember last week, changes like uh, going from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant. From Jesus' presence on earth to the Holy Spirit's presence on earth. From law to grace. Big differences. Big changes. And this week, we're also going to be looking at a few changes. We're going to be looking at a kind of a change of, amongst the apostles of who takes center stage. We know after Jesus ascended to heaven and Peter kind of stepped forward in the day of Pentecost and we see Peter with his, with his big personality kind of being the lead man. And now we start to see the Apostle Paul, who was Saul, kind of come to the forefront. It may not seem as significant, but boy, in the big picture, it's an amazingly significant change that's taking place. We see the Gentile church rising up in significance, and the Jewish Jerusalem church kind of again being sort of slid to the background. Not that they're insignificant, not that they still weren't very important in what God's purposes were, but the Gentile church is, is being raised and raised up. The Jewish church, if you recall, in Jerusalem was basically formed by people who knew about Yahweh. They already knew about God. They understood sin. They understood that there was a Messiah that had been predicted for hundreds and hundreds of years And so there was a sense of expectation, even though most of the Jews, or very many of the Jews, missed it completely. But these are the people that you would think it would have been a relatively easy step, wouldn't you? From all of that knowledge, all those years of anticipation, all the prophets writing about the Messiah coming, you'd think it'd be an easy step to just connect the dots to, here's Jesus, the Messiah. Many didn't. The religious leaders for sure didn't. But the Jerusalem church was made up of primary, primarily the Jews. And then the third thing we see happening is, up till this point, Israel was centered in this particular land that God had given them, had promised them. And their worship was centralized in the city of Jerusalem at the temple. And now we're going to see a significant change where the church is going to be dispersed throughout the known world. So when you look at those things, major changes, and the result of those changes is very, very significant in the spread of the gospel and the fulfilling 
of the command to go into the world. We're going to be looking at Paul, primarily Paul, sometime after his conversion. When you read about Paul's conversion, you almost read it and you go, well, he did this, he got saved, he had that Damascus Road experience, Ananias came and opened his eyes, and he went right to work ministering. Well, it didn't work quite that way. Between his Damascus Road experience and his first missionary journey was a time of approximately 13 or 14 years. He was taken into Arabia for an extended period of time. We don't know for sure how long exactly, but he was instructed by the Lord. And then there was all these other things that he did in ministering and connecting with the disciples. So it was a number of years before he went on his missionary experiences. And he went primarily to the Gentiles, which was fulfillment of a prophecy that the Lord himself had spoken to Ananias. Uh, if you remember the story, Saul, traveling on the road to Damascus, had an encounter with God. He fell to the ground. Scales came on his eyes. He couldn't see. And they took him into Damascus. And then the Lord spoke to this man named Ananias. And Ananias, he says, Ananias, I want you to go to Saul. And he goes, are you kidding me, Lord? I know this guy. I've heard about him. No way. And then in, in Acts 9, verse 15, it says, But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles, their kings, and before the people of Israel. This is God's man. Amongst all the disciples, he chose Saul, who became Paul. And if you look at the whole thing in the big picture, God's upper story is a perfect choice. His education, his Roman citizenship, understanding the Greek as well as the Jewish, being really schooled in Judaism. He was an interesting choice, perfect choice. But it came at a great cost to Paul in fulfilling that calling. Now, when Paul would go from place to place, he normally would go to the synagogue and start with the Jews. He would go to the synagogue. Sometimes he was able to go there more than once. Other times he wasn't there very long at all before the religious people cast him aside, threatened him, threatened to kill him. And eventually he would go to the Gentiles. And finally it reaches a point in Corinth when he gets a little, I think, upset, a little frustrated with the Jewish leaders. And he says, you know what? It's on your head now. I've came, you reject it, I'm now going to the Gentiles. And his focus really switched to primarily the Gentile people. Who are the Gentiles? Anybody that wasn't a Jew? Okay, anybody that wasn't a Jew was a Gentile. Now when he did this, this transition, I think there's something for us to gather here. He had to make some changes in the way he did ministry. In other words, his methods had to change to reach a new group of people. Sound familiar? His message never changed. Boy, was he insistent and the message never changing. The gospel message in its purity would not change. But his methods did. And think about this for a second. He would go to the Jewish people. If you were a Jew like Paul, well-educated, knew all there was to know about Judaism, and you would go to other Jews, just think what you would have in common. And in the scriptures he says, and he would go and he would reason with them going through the scriptures, going through the prophets, and leading them, trying to lead them to Jesus. That was his method 
of evangelism. Now he's going to go to the Gentiles. Guess what? They don't know the scriptures. They don't know the prophets. They don't know Adam from Abraham, from Moses. They don't know. He had to change his methods. The culture he was going into was different. And that's what he did. He went and he met people where they were at. You might remember in Athens, he, had, he came across a, an altar that the words, to the unknown God. And he says, wait a minute. I come to tell you who that unknown God is. And then he proceeded. So where was I? In Corinth? The unknown God? Only a few of you are nodding your head. The rest of you, it's time to wake up. Okay. So his message didn't change. His methods changed. Paul went on three different missionary journeys. On his second missionary journey, he went to Corinth. And when you get to Corinth, we're going to focus on Corinth. Paul was called to minister to a different culture, different than what he was used to. His methods had to change. And he was going into a culture that we're going to look at that would be unbelievably hard to minister in. Kind of like the culture you and I live in. And you'll see some similarities, I believe. The title of my message this morning is simply The Gospel in a Challenging Culture. The Gospel in a Challenging Culture. Paul was called to be a witness. If you recall last week, we really focused in on the fact that you and I are called to be a witness. And we focused last week on the reality that that doesn't mean we just are called to go and speak the gospel. We're called to go and live the gospel. Our life, the way we live our life, is a witness and a testimony to who Jesus is. We're to go as his ambassadors. We are all in a process, if we know Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, of becoming more Christ-like. And that process should be evident. So as we look at this, we're going to look at a culture that Paul is called to minister to, and I think you're going to be able to draw a lot of similarities to the culture you and I are living in. So do any of these comments ring a bell? See if you can finish the sentence for me. What happens in Vegas, I'm ashamed that you know that. If it feels good, just do it, right? Is this loud enough? Okay. The third one, you might have to be my age. We'll give it a shot. You only live once, so there you go. Go for the gusto. I think that was a grain belt commercial, wasn't it? <laughs> it's better than Vegas. That's the culture we live in. Look at those things. Just do it. What Happens in Vegas, stays in Vegas. You only live once, go for it. We are a culture that is marked by indulgence. We are a culture that is marked by immorality, and we are a culture that is marked by self-gratification, selfishness. That's our culture. And we would think, boy, oh boy, it's never been this bad, but boy, oh boy, are we wrong if we think that way. You know, in Ecclesiastes, Solomon wrote these words, what has been will be again. And it has been done, will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. Nothing new. 
when we look at evil today, it's not new. The good news in that is, that tells me from what we understand about Jesus' work on the cross, that whatever there is out there today, God's got an answer for it in Christ. It's been dealt with at the cross. But we're going to look at this and see how Paul dealt with it and what we can learn from that. You'll see, I believe, that there are a lot of parallels. Now, the whole Bible, it's important for you to understand it by looking at its historical context, the whole Bible. But I think it really helps in particular in this letter to the Corinthians that you understand a little bit more about the historical context of the city of Corinth where Paul went to plant this church. We're going to look at the Corinthian world and see what it looked like. First of all, if you look at this map, you see where Corinth is located. It's a tiny isthmus. That isthmus is only about four and a half miles wide. And because of its location, it was strategic. To avoid storms out on open seas, ships would come in, and they would literally, if the ship was too large, they'd unload everything from that ship, carry it four and a half miles onto the other side of the isthmus, and put it on another ship. If the ship was a little bit smaller, they would actually take it, and they would roll the whole ship on logs all the way across the isthmus. It was a place of trade. It's like so many places we see in the scripture that was a significant location. Because it was such a place of trade, a place of wealth. At this particular place, there was also something that was called Corinthian brass, which was a combination of gold and silver and copper, representing wealth in that area. It was a melting pot of people in this area. People would come, all the sailors from all the different countries, And some would stay. It was a place where they would host what they called the Ithmian Games. Athletic athletic prowess was highly esteemed in ancient Corinth. These games were second only to the Olympian Games. It was a, a place of unbelievable temple worship. Many, many mythical gods. Temples were built to Athena and Apollo and Poseidon and Hermes and Isis. And then there was one called Aphrodite or Aphrodites, the god of sex. Immorality permeated this culture. The temple history shows that the temple to Aphrodites had over a thousand female priestesses. Technically, they weren't prostitutes, but part of the worship was having sex with these priestesses. This is where this culture was, a far cry from the Jewish culture that Paul was used to. This is the culture that he was called to. There was a very wealthy upper class, but because so many freed slaves came there, there was a very poor class. So the socioeconomic difference was great. It was a stronghold of worldly philosophy. It was only a few miles from Athens, Greece. The Greek mind, worldly philosophy, all these philosophers would get together and share their infinite worldly wisdom. And then they'd say, well, that sounds good. We've got to get together tomorrow and talk about it some more. This is the culture that he was called to plant a church in. Matter of fact, 
the area of Corinth was so evil and immoral. There's a term, and you can look this term up, Google this term, you will find this term yet today. It's called Corinthianized. And as near as I can tell, America has become Corinthianized. The word itself means licentious, debauchery, lewd, sexual, immoral lifestyle. Corinthianized. It was such an evil place that the word Corinthianized came to be. Well, you're probably already grabbing a lot of the similarities that I listed up there. Our world philosophy is permeating our educational system, especially at the university level, but it's all the way down to the high school, elementary, kindergarten level. The biblical worldview is mocked, and actually, in a lot of places, it's been legally removed from our educational system. A philosophy of the world. Sexual immorality has become the norm. Matter of fact, it's become so normal, if you try to live a sexually moral life or you talk about a sexually moral life, you are weird you are intolerant, and you are absolutely not politically correct. All kinds of sexual immorality. We have cities like Vegas, but like New Orleans, like New York, like Las Vegas, or excuse me, Los Angeles. They have come playground, become playgrounds for people that most of the time they're sensible until they go to those places where all the restraints are cast off. And not only do we have these cities, look what we promote in those cities. Let's go to Las Vegas. Let's go to Mardi Gras. What does that mean? Watch the commercials on TV. I mean, can you imagine being a city and your tagline is, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. Be tough to answer to God someday with that philosophy. We have become a culture of where anything goes, irregardless of financial, personal loss. It doesn't matter. This is the culture Paul's called to. This is the kind of culture we're called to. This is where we live. So we're going to look at the Corinthian church with that background. As was Paul's custom when he got to Corinth, he went to the synagogues first. He met up with Aquila and Priscilla, and he was doing tent making with them while he was going to the synagogue and teaching. And then Timothy and Silas came, and Paul said, I've had enough with the Jewish people. I'm going to focus on the Gentiles. He spent 18 months in Corinth. He really invested his life in Corinth in planting this church in the midst of this culture. And it was about five years later, as best I can tell, that he got word that things weren't quite right in Corinth, the church in Corinth. And if you read the letter of 1 Corinthians, that's Paul's response to what was taking place in the church in Corinth. And as you read it, you're going to see a couple of primary things that lead to some secondary issues. 
that he really focuses on. The first one is immaturity. Immaturity. In 1 Corinthians 3, 1, he says, Brothers, I could not address you as spiritual, but as worldly, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not yet ready for it. Indeed, you are still not ready. You are still worldly. For since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, you are not, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere men? If I was going to paraphrase that, I would say as nicely as I could, why don't you grow up? That's what Paul's saying. It's okay to be babes in Christ, but don't stay in diapers forever. It's okay. A healthy church should have babes in Christ. A healthy church should have people all along that scale of maturity. But he's looking at this church in Corinth and he's saying, you haven't changed the way you should have. You haven't grown mature in the Lord. And because of that, there's a number of problems that manifest out of spiritual immaturity. See how you can connect with these problems that he addresses. The first one is actually division and strife in the church. Where there is spiritual maturity in the body of Christ, especially spiritual maturity in the leadership in the body of Christ, there should be unity by the Holy Spirit. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 1.10, I appeal to you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another that there, so may, there may be no division among you and that you may be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. One says, I follow Apollos. Another says, I follow Cephas. And another one says, I follow Jesus Christ. We're all under the banner of Christ. But in their immaturity, they were still arguing about who it was that made them more important if they were a follower of that individual. Immature, had not grown in who they were in Christ. A second thing that occurs out of this spiritual immaturity is a division in worldview. Now, you've got to give these Corinthians some slack, and I'll show you that Paul certainly did. As a matter of fact, when I get through with the message just about, we're going to go back to the first chapter of Corinthians to see how Paul graciously started this letter that really is a letter of correction, maybe even of rebuke, but because he loved them and he knew who they were in Christ. Division and worldview, you can imagine the Corinthians coming from the Greek mindset, the Greek philosophy, and now there's this whole new worldview coming from a biblical worldview, what we call a biblical worldview. Living in a way that brings glory and honor to Jesus Christ. Living in a way that represents a relationship with Christ, not the way the world lives. Who shapes the way you live? The worldly culture or for us, the Bible, the biblical worldview? And he's saying you're immature. By now, you should have grown past that. You should be understanding more and more of what a relationship with Jesus Christ looks like. A third thing that shows up in immaturity is division in your daily living. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7 through 16, he spends all of that dealing with these different issues in the way they live. He starts out with talking about lawsuits between believers instead of coming together as believers, brothers and sisters in Christ, and solving your differences. He talks about divorce. He talks about marriage. He talks about 
the way to worship. The worship was disruptive and chaotic. He talks about them not honoring the Lord's Supper. He talks about all of these things and more. He talks about arguing over whose spiritual gift is the best instead of understanding that all the gifts are to build up the body of Christ, all important in their function. Division in the church, division in your worldview, division in the way daily lives are being led, and division in doctrine. Immaturity, spiritual immaturity is a fertile soil for error in doctrine. The one he addresses particularly in the church in Corinth was those who chose not to believe in the resurrection. Can you imagine how that stirred up Paul? How could you possibly not believe in the resurrection? And when he addressed it, he talked about it this way in 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 3 through 8. And if you ever want a, a, a capsule of the salvation message, here's a good one. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 8, it says, For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter, then to the twelve, and that after that he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of who are still living at that time, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me. In other words, he's saying, there's a whole lot of eyewitnesses, and I'm one of them. Addressing an essential of the faith. With immaturity, there needs to be a growth so we get to understand that in the church, in the faith, there are truly non-essentials, but there are essentials that never can be compromised. And Paul is clearly laying out the resurrection is one of those essentials. So immaturity, you can see the spiritual immaturity, the effect it has in the church. And the second area he had to address, knowing the background of Corinth, is immorality. Immorality. In Corinth, immorality was the norm. For goodness sakes, it was part of temple worship at the temple of Aphrodite. These people didn't even recognize these things as sin. They didn't know it was sin. They didn't know it was wrong. That's where they lived. Paul's addressing the church, and he's having to address them because believers were participating still in sexual immorality. But even worse than that is the church was not confronting the sexual immorality in the church. Are you connecting the dots with our current culture? This is the church Paul's writing to them, and he's having to go back here. He's having to go back and remind them of what they believed, what Jesus has done in their life, how he's changed them, and he's having to address these issues. Many of these believers, many of them, were coming out of immorality. 
In 1 Corinthians 6, 9, it goes like this. Do you not know the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Boy, it's like getting you slapped in the face and patted on the back all at one time. He's telling them, this is what you were. There is not, I'm not condemning you for what you were. I'm reminding you, no, though, of who you now are. That you have been washed, you have been justified, justified, that you have been saved. They will not inherit the kingdom of God. And sexual sin is such a unique kind of sin because it's sin in one's own body. The body which the Bible calls the temple of God. Application for today. What's it look like? Well, the first thing is the obvious thing. The Christian life should be marked by maturity. We should be growing in maturity. Now, understand, don't hear me putting anybody down who's a babe in Christ. A healthy church needs to have babes in Christ. But we need to be able to see we're maturing in that faith the longer we are in the faith, the longer we are in the family of God. All levels of maturity are necessary. We need the mature to help mentor the babes. And there will be everything in between. It's why it's so important, some of the things, some of the programs, some of the, some of the efforts that we make to make sure discipleship is taking place. Maturity. We focused on immaturity. Let's just hit maturity first. What does maturity look like? One, unity. Unity. It's one of the things we have been so blessed with in this church over the years. There has been unity in this body. But unity is a fragile thing. We can get so bent out of shape over some things, especially if we're spiritually immature. That doesn't mean we agree on everything. That doesn't mean we all become robotic and act like, talk like, walk like each one of, each one of us. We're all individuals. But with maturity comes the ability and understanding, you know what, I can give up my rights. I don't have to win. I don't have to win all the time. I will fight and argue and debate for the essentials of the faith. But those non-essentials, we need to extend grace to disagree. And that's okay. A biblical worldview should be the sign of maturity. You know, it's, it's hard to live in our culture. But a book that was written so long ago gives us how to do it. Living more and more from a biblical worldview. In Romans 12, 2, it says, Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. 
Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. We are no longer to be controlled, conformed to the world's point of view. And you are being educated every day, all day long, to the culture of today. You listen to most radio, you watch television, you go to movies, you read magazines, you go to school. Everywhere you go, you are being educated. The propaganda is out there to a worldly viewpoint. That's why it's so important that you develop a biblical worldview. And there is one prerequisite for having a biblical worldview. Anybody know what that might be? You've got to know what the Bible is. You've got to read it. You've got to study it. You've got to spend time in fellowship with others talking about the word. It's hard to have a biblical worldview if you don't know what the Bible says. We need to get to that place where we're starting to look, through, look at the world through the eyes of God. Which brings us back to the upper story, the upper story of God, his perfect plan. Once we have that biblical worldview, it will transform the way we prioritize things in our life, the way we live our life, the way we speak. It will transform everything. Maturity results in holy living. You know, sometimes I get people who come to me and they'll ask me about a specific thing or a specific issue that's become common in our culture. And they're wondering what the Bible says about this. Well, the Bible doesn't address everything specifically, does it? The world's changed. You know, it could be something as silly as, is it sinful to play games, video games, all day long? <laughs> Help me. Where is that found in the Bible? It's not, right? No, it's just a silly one. But there are lots of issues that arise. But a mature Christian, as we mature, we're able to apply. <laughs> All the little kids are squirming. <laughs> Wish you were children's church age, right? I'm not saying there's anything wrong with playing those video games. But there are principles in the Word of God that we can apply to those issues that aren't directly found in the Bible as we become mature, and it will affect the way that we live our lives. Maturity brings essential brings unity in the essential doctrines. If you wonder what are some of the essential doctrines, pick up what we have that says what we believe. There are certain things, the purity of the gospel, salvation is by grace through faith only, nothing more. Sanctification is by faith. We believe in the Trinity. We believe in the virgin birth. We believe Jesus is fully God and is fully man. We pray, believe that Jesus fully paid for sin through his death and resurrection. We believe in the infallibility of Scripture. We believe in the second coming of Jesus Christ. These are essentials to what we believe. And in those, we need to stand strong. But in those non-essentials, as I mentioned earlier, there's an opportunity for us to extend grace. What are some of the non-essentials? Well, there are churches where this wouldn't cut it on the holy altar. There are churches where we'd have to start breaking instruments like that. And like the piano. And the drums have got to go. There are churches that have all kinds of 
non-essential doctrines. When's Jesus coming back? I don't know, and neither do you. So why would we argue about it? End times theology. Hey, it's interesting. You should know what you believe and why you believe it. But it's not essential. There are so many things like that. The color of the carpet, where the water fountain should be located. Non-essential doctrines, brothers and sisters, right? We joke because there's been such good unity here. Churches split over all those things. It's ridiculous. That's spiritual immaturity gone amok. Morality. Morality should be the norm for mature Christians. And I, and I, and I understand. You know, Darren and I are golf partners when we go and minister at the golf course every Thursday afternoon. I can't even pull that off with a straight face. But we had the privilege of playing with a couple guys this last week, and it's like, oh, my goodness, this was challenging everything in us. Forget which hole it was, but I looked at Darren and I said, I think we need to shower just from who we were golfing with, listening to for four and a half hours. That's their normal. What's our normal? We cannot be influenced by their normal. We have to be influenced by the biblical worldview when it comes to morality. And as churches, if we don't stand up for morality and speak out against immorality, especially in our culture today of sexual immorality, we, no one else will. We stand up and proclaim sin is sin, and we are getting called intolerant and bigoted. I know a pastor, I read about this pastor, I don't know him personally, who, who spoke publicly calling homosexuality as, as a sin, and he got death threats from members of his church. The church has to, if we are spiritually mature, the morality needs to become the norm, regardless of political correctness. We need to love the sinner, but declare sin as sin. That's all there is to it. It should be a sign of maturity. Application, a little implication. What's that mean for us? Well, one thing it means for us, we have to be really intentional as a church and as a people in discipleship. Amen? We have to be intentional. We need to do all that we can. We need to be in our life groups. We need to be in Bible studies. We need to be doing one-on-one mentoring. We need to be doing these things so that we're all maturing in Christ. Boy, there is nothing like solid, sound discipleship to prevent all kinds of problems in the church. That's why we're making so many of the changes this fall that we're making. It's not that we were doing things necessarily poorly. We just need to do them better. We need to change some methods, but never the message. We need to figure out how to reach that unchurched generation that I've shared with you so many times. You know, that group called the Millennials. 80 million of them. We need to figure out how we can see more than 1% 
attend church regularly because they aren't now. Changing the message, the method, not the message, in a culture that's tough. But we're called to do it. You need to remember this. And I make this mistake quite regularly by, because I assume too much up front when I'm talking to someone. We need to realize, just as Paul, talking to those Corinthians, had to realize they didn't have a clue about anything spiritual except the spiritual stuff they'd been exposed to. Idol worship. Witchcraft. That was their experience. They didn't even know sin was sin. You, I, I, you probably wouldn't be surprised, but I still get surprised sometimes when people will ask me something, is this okay? And I look at them like, are you serious? What they're doing is so clearly said in the Bible that it's sin. But they don't know it. You can't sit down and reason with them from Scripture any more than Paul could because they don't know the Scripture. You meet them where they're at. They're looking for hope. They're looking for someone to love them. They're looking for peace in their lives. And when you can reveal the source of those things to them, you eventually will lead them to Scripture, to the Gospel message. But we've got to meet them where they're at. It's so easy to pull back and look at their lifestyle and say, oh my gosh, I don't want anything to do with them. Remember, but for the grace of God, that's us. We need to reach out. We need to understand that salvation and sanctification both come by faith through the work of the Holy Spirit in us. But you learn to, learn to walk by the Spirit through practice. You know, there's a great scripture. I'm not going to read it all. It's in Hebrews chapter 5. But at the end of verse 14, it talks about it and it says this way. Solid food is for the mature who because of practice have their senses trained to, turn, to do good and evil, to understand and recognize good and evil. We need to practice and give them grace to practice. When they've been dabbling in unspiritual things or other types of spiritual things, that needs to be unlearned, and they have to learn with the freedom and joy that is available in relationship with Christ. So when you look at the letter of Corinthians like we've done, you could almost say, wow, they really got spanked good, didn't they? I'm going to close with reading from chapter 1, verse 1. And I want you to listen to how Paul addresses these people. Paul loved these people. He spent a year and a half of his life planting this church. He loved them and cared about them. And they had believed the message. So he starts out this letter with these words first. Paul called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and our brother Sosthenes to the church of God in Corinth. Now listen to the way he describes these people. To those sanctified in Christ Jesus and those called to be holy, together with all those everywhere who call the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank God for you because of his grace given to you in Christ. 
For in him you have been enriched in every way, in all your speaking and all your knowledge. Because our testimony about Christ was confirmed in you. Therefore, you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. He will keep you strong to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God, who has called you into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, is faithful. Isn't that great? Why would he say all those things up front? I believe it's because he knew who he was talking to. They had to be reminded because they're people. We need to be reminded because we're people. We need to be reminded who we are in Christ and how we can live in Christ. Let's close in prayer. Father, I am so thankful for those words in chapter 1 of Corinthians. God, to remind us of who we are in Jesus Christ, to remind us of the work that you have done in us, to continually draw us back to yourself. Lord, I pray for each one of us here, we would hear and apply that part of what's been shared today that you wanted to really address to each one of us individually. Lord, I thank you for the calling to be a witness in the culture we live in. I thank you for each one who has responded to your call. First, to accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. And then to be witnesses to the world. We pray for your grace to be upon us as we attempt to fulfill that calling. Lord, I pray that we would continually be striving for greater and greater maturity in Christ, that we would never be content where we're at, but always looking forward and not looking backwards. I pray this week that you would guide and direct us as we go our different ways, that we would be on the alert spiritually for those opportunities to be your witnesses in a world and in a culture that we are foreigners in. God, I pray you would bless us this week, keep us safe, help us to be alert to the snares of the enemy, that we may bring you glory and honor in all that we do. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.